Being a Jew, awesome. Managing personal finances, not so awesome. Welcome to Kosher Money. Another episode of Kosher Money, going through these things like crazy. Today, we're heading into the big, wonderful world of home buying. We have with us Evan Templeman, a branch manager at Cross Country Mortgage, which is a mortgage lending company, Mortgage Bankers. Correct. And uh, they're based in Ohio, but you're based here in the five towns. That's correct. So I look at this episode as an episode where people can share with their friends and family as a way to be exposed to the world of home buying. When I bought a home, I knew very little about it. I called my older brother. He told me a little bit. But people have a ton of questions, and they learn a lot as they're going through the process. But our goal here is to try to shed a little bit of light into this murky world. I'm sure you know all the ins and outs of this world. Uh, How did you get into this space? Okay, it's an interesting question. Um, I was actually in Kailal and Yeshiva Frakway, and my father-in-law is a real estate appraiser. I was already thinking about starting a career. He introduced me to a company that he was already doing a lot of business with. And really, from that first meeting with them, we hit it off, and I started at that company. It was called First Financial Equities. And from there, I uh, moved around until I'm finally at my current location, which I uh, feel most comfortable at. How many years of schooling does someone need for a position like this? So... When I started in the industry, I think it was 2008, that was prior to any licensing requirement. You literally were able to come straight from Kylil, like for example, myself, or many people would literally just jump in when the market was hot. Um, Now already, they do require um, 40 hours of training. But there's also a test. Doesn't sound super <laughs> intense, right? Like but, there's 40 hours, one week, and you're right into yeah. it. But the reason why I said it, that they already require it, because there is a test p- p- post those um, training hours, and you really do have to study the material and know it pretty well. Cool. Okay, so when it comes to home buying, people, a lot of people listening, they're in apartments, and they always ask, how much liquidity do I need to buy a home? Obviously, it depends on the on the price of the home, but maybe we work in percentages. How much liquidity does yeah. someone need? So that is an excellent question. Uh, I only article. ask excellent questions, yeah. by the way. <laughs> I have like a list of 40 excellent questions. Um, apparently, this is one of the four um, items that I just came across that are going away. It used to be 20%, 20%. 20% of the 20% home value. 20% down of when when you apply for a loan, you use the lower of the purchase price or the appraised value. So when you say home value, it's the lower of the two. So let's say a house costs $100,000. You would need $20,000 in cash to buy that home. Correct. That okay. is the old way of thinking and the way how many people still view the process. Okay. Um, over the years, um, they have added products. Um, you re- pretty much can get the same rate with putting down as little as 3%. There are requirements income-wise, loan amount-wise, but for your typical first-time home buyer, so not a jumbo loan, there are a significant amount of products that you could put down as little as 3%. So let's explain that when you say rate, you're talking about the interest rate. Correct. What is an interest rate for those listening? Sure. Okay. So the interest rate is probably one of the most important pieces of the puzzle when you're going to apply for a loan. 
that's going to set your monthly payment based on the amount that you're borrowing. So obviously, it goes without saying, the lower the rate, the lower your monthly payments. We're actually at a, and right now, we're currently at historically low rates. So people are taking advantage, they're buying homes, utilizing, you know, lower rates. Potentially, you can get a little bit of a higher loan amount at that same payment at a higher rate with a lower loan amount. Okay. Um, So... At the 20% rate, let's just say today could be 2875 mm-hmm. You do have products where you'll put down 3% and still obtain the same low rate of 2875 So I'm giving on this $100,000 home, I'm only liquid $3,000. Yeah. Yeah. I know. And I can get a 2.875% rate yeah. as if I've given $20,000 towards the home. Yes, as far as the interest rate. There okay. is the added component of the mortgage insurance. Now, mortgage insurance comes when you put down less than 20%. Mm -hmm. Depending on your credit, it's really a very slow monthly payment compared to the rest of the mortgage. So on a $100,000 loan, if you had good credit, your mortgage insurance could literally be $50 a month. And that is not for the life of the loan. Mm -hmm. That's for... There's there's different uh, determining factors. But to to make things simple, until that loan goes under 80%, you would be paying that extra $50. So for a young couple looking to buy, they should not be held back because they don't have the 20%. Right. Maybe that $50 a month is worth it. Right. I'll get into the house now. Good deal on the house. Property values are typically going up. Right. And that $50 is something that they could absorb and they could keep the cash for either work that they needed to do or if they didn't have it, they can still get into the home. The 20% was always a big number, right? Because most homes we buy are not $100,000. They could be Correct. upwards of 600000 to a million. And then you have a 20% number of $125,000, $200,000. That's a, a meaningful amount of liquidity that people don't have. So you're saying that, no, even if you have just 5%, that shouldn't be a reason why you're not buying a home in a world where there's great interest rates, you have a great house that you're looking at, you can be, you can have less liquidity and still get the home you want. That is absolutely correct. Now, I don't think someone should buy a house because interest rates are low. Okay. I think a person should buy a house when they are financially secure. That was one of my excellent questions coming up. Oh. But yes, you nailed it. Yeah. Right. So, so what? When should someone buy a home, and how important are interest rates versus right. the value or the prices of the home? So it is a very interesting question. Um, my opinion is a person should not buy a house based on interest rates. I feel like a house is a long-term investment, and a person should buy a house when he is financially secure, when he has job stability, and he feels comfortable that it's the right time. That is the proper time to buy the house. As far as interest rates being a factor, well, my understanding is that as interest rates are low, that can allow some of the houses pricing to go up. If interest rates go up, what will eventually happen is some of the housing prices will come down. That's why I don't get too caught up in the interest rate as a reason to buy the home. There will be a time that as the interest rates rise, yes, you should have done it when it was a little bit lower, but it somewhat evens out as interest rates go up, the pricing houses do go down. So you look at stability and people's readiness to buy a home more so than you are looking at the interest rate, right? Absolutely. So what percentage would you say of someone's take-home salary should be allocated towards that 
the the cost of housing. Someone someone could have a great job, but they're now going to be spending fifty percent of their take home pay on a mortgage payment, and they're not really left over, if at all, with any additional monies. So on that question, I can tell you, from my experience, I sometimes wonder when I take applications, how in the world is this person going to make his payments? And what I've learned from experience is everybody's take-home salary is different for each person. What do I mean by that? Mm -hmm. So many people have different ways where they're actually bringing in different sources of income, and I can't calculate that. So a person really does have to know he may have his set salary. There's other sources of income. That, of course, has to play a role. But to your point of what is if you're assuming somebody just has a set salary, Mm -hmm. the guidelines do not take into consideration any individual's expenses. They take into consideration the general outlook, which is you take your gross salary – so if a person makes $120,000 a year, you're allowed, typically speaking, to use 49% of that on a monthly basis. So what's 120 divided by 10? Is that 10000 Yeah, about 12000 About $12,000, yep. So you would take 49% of that, which is close to $6,000, and that is the number that the bank will allow you to... Um, to have in your debt. So if you, you would take your housing payment, let's say it's $4,000, mm-hmm. and your credit card payments and car payments would total 2000 so that's your 6000 that would be the max that the bank will let you use. So the guidelines are already built in to use 50% of your gross income allocated towards housing and on your credit report, and they're leaving the other 50% for taxes and miscellaneous. Mm. So when it comes to loan approval how much money you make is a big piece. Absolutely. What else? What 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 else are uh, mortgage brokers, lenders, banks looking at when it comes to loan approval? So I use the three C's as something that I will explain to a borrower. It's credit, capacity, and collateral. I thought one f- would for sure be cash, but okay. Yeah. It is, but those are the first, those are the three that I, I, I emphasize. So you got to have your good credit. Good credit. What's better- good credit? Nowadays, they actually even have tiers above 760. It used to be above 700 was good. If you're under 760, you'll probably already have an, a negative impact to your rate. You so your the, rate would be higher your if, rate it, if will your have rate's an below 760. Correct. Would that be something, and we'll go through each one, but sure. if someone's rate is 730, would you advise them to, to get their credit up before applying for that loan, or that's not going to necessarily make or break? Okay, so... Depending on why the credit another, is at another 730. excellent question, right? Yeah, you're okay, doing very good. well, Holly. Yaakov, you hearing this? Yeah. Doing very well. Um, depending on the house that he has in mind, depending on what his credit looks like and why it's 730, we do have opportunities to advise a borrower how they could improve their credit, which can happen you know, relatively quickly, that they can still keep this house. And over the next few weeks, if they follow the steps that we advise, they can improve their credit. Mm -hmm. You know, if somebody has really, really weak credit, there are times where a person will hold off from buying because of the long-term effect on their monthly payment. And if it's just not the right time, it just, it doesn't make sense. It can, you're talking about thousands of dollars sometimes. Right. What's capacity? Capacity is referring to the income that we went over. So from a mortgage underwriting um, perspective, 
the bank will use on certain products I was referring to when I said 49%. Some will be as tight as 43%, but I was just going across 49%, which often you can get for a loan amount. They just increased that for a loan amount up until 937, I think. They just increased that for 2022. So assuming you have that 49%, that's your capacity. And collateral? Collateral is the value of the property. So there has to be equity um, on the property that you're purchasing, obviously. Gotcha. Okay. Um, Many realtors or homeowners will require some sort of pre-approval. What's the process? I'm buying a home for the first time. I don't know anything about this. Um, How do I get pre-approval and what are people looking at? Okay. Pre-approval is an absolute must in this market. This market, the supply is extremely low. And the only way a real estate agent will entertain an offer from a potential buyer is to make sure that they're already vetted out. So that's in essence what the pre-approval is doing. When you're submitting a pre-approval to a realtor, you're showing them, hey, I'm a legitimate buyer. The process of getting a pre-approval would be to call a bank, a lender, um, submit the basic um, um, documentation and information about your file. So what your purchase price is, how much you have available, they'll run your credit. What's important to note is a pre-approval is not a commitment. The underwriter has not reviewed it. So it really is extremely preliminary. But if you're dealing with a professional and an experienced loan officer, mm-hmm. the, the loan officer can pretty much tell you if your loan will be approved based on that initial conversation. So assuming your credit is good, assuming you have the down payment based on what you want to apply for, assuming your income will support that loan amount, they will issue you the pre-approval, which you can then submit to the realtor and he'll know this is a buyer that I want to work with. Has the market been crazy over the last year, given that supply is so limited and the economy is just in a wick-wack shape right now? Um, how has your life been over the last yeah. year? So absolutely, the the market is, it has been crazy. It's still crazy. Mostly prices are going above asking price, which really prior to, the, I would say this year, year and a half, that was extremely uncommon. What it is causing as far as um, difficulty in the industry, and this is industry uh, across across the board right now, is because the prices are going faster, they're, they're going above the, price, um, the, the asking price, sometimes when you're purchasing the home, the appraisal actually comes in lower than the purchase price. Mm. And typically speaking, that's not a good sign, but... An appraisal can only use data on closed sales. So imagine the last sale closed at 800,000 mm-hmm. and all the next few houses are now going at 825, 850. The appraisal may come in only at 800. The next group of houses will then get the 850, but by then the houses are 875. So the challenge that that brings to us and a borrower is, like I said previously, the value that the bank uses is the lower of the two. Mm. So back to your example, you buy a house for 100000 let's even use 3% that the borrower is using, it's a small number in this case, mm-hmm. that's $3,000. Mm-hmm. But suppose the house appraises for 90000 Now we're only giving you 97% of the $90,000. Mm-hmm. you are not getting a $97,000 loan. Mm-hmm. So 
borrowers, when they go into these type of deals, and they can tell when the house is, you know, there's many bids, sometimes they need to actually prepare to bring extra funds if the house does not appraise for the purchase price. From where you sit, and you deal with a lot of Orthodox Jewish customers, right? Sure. How many of the people, what percentage of the people you work with have or get some sort of liquidity from their parents or in-laws? Yeah. I know this wasn't on the list of yeah. questions, yeah. but uh, no. people, people, there are people that have parents or in-laws that aren't in a position to support them, and and they see their their friends moving into homes, and they're always wondering. No one really tells anyone how they've been able to come up with the, with the cash to make it happen. Sure. And in our cases, we're not talking about three thousand dollars or a difference of three thousand dollars, where. Someone might need a, a gift sure. of fifty to one hundred to one hundred fifty thousand dollars for that down payment. Um, is help a big component for a lot of people? Okay, I do get that question a lot. Okay, I usually get the question phrased as follows: I know so and so. I make just as much as him. Uh-huh. How is he buying that house? Right. I do get that question. Um, where I live in Lawrence, yeah, it's a very big component of the transaction. When, when first-time home buyers are buying um, these high-priced homes, high-priced homes, it's very common to see significant gifts. Um, but that's only a percentage of the business that I do. When you're looking at $2 million homes, you may see that. But very, very often, if you're dealing with anywhere between a $600 to $1 million home, people make it work. They put together their fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000. They were planning on this for a year, two years. Mm-hmm. And... A lot of the deals are done on their own. Husband, wife, they're working, they're putting together, and they scrape it together. What's the average age, would you say, of a first-time homebuyer from your customers? Is it the mid-20s, mid-30s, 30? Where does it come out? It's a good question. I haven't thought about it, but if you're asking me now, I would say probably closer to 30 Mm. would be my first-time homebuyer range. Got it. Okay. Um, Let's talk about young couples, someone who's 30 years old, they're buying a home for the first time. We went through some of the uh, pre-approvals, the loans, the monies. What are things people should be discussing between um, them and their spouse when it comes, or or keeping in mind when it comes to first-time home buying? Sure. So we spoke about the Mm pre-approval. Another reason why a pre-approval is extremely important to first-time home buyers, and they should really do this right away, is very often... When you go for that initial pre-approval, the loan officer comes back to you and says, your credit is such and such, 690. And their immediate response is, I know I've never missed a payment. And very often there is something showing up on their credit report. And the more of a rush you need that to be repaired, the more expensive it costs. Because there are credit repair companies. So that's something that I find extremely valuable for people to actually know their credit score that shows up on a credit report. Because there are times that things get reported. Another thing that gets reported that people are very unaware of is they open up a credit card, it has an annual payment, they never use that card. What happens a year later, they get the bill for the annual renewal, Mm -hmm. but they weren't paying attention to that because they don't use that card. It shows up late. That impacts their scores. So I believe what a person can do up front is knowing your scores and monitoring that, making sure that it's in tip-top shape. 
So see, someone who's not even thinking about home buying, who's 24 years old, married with one kid, they should be already monitoring their credit score. There's definitely value to that. You know, it's important for many areas of finance. You want to get a car, but specifically with your house, it has the biggest impact. You know, if you're not buying a house for six years, if you're 24 and you're waiting till 30, you know, I, w- I wouldn't pressure somebody to do that. Mm-hmm. But I don't see any downside in knowing what your credit is and making sure there's nothing incorrectly reporting. I don't have the statistics on me, but the statistics are very high for incorrect thing for, for things being reported incorrectly on you. So once you have to deal with that, the short the shorter the time span you're giving a company, the more expensive it is. Yaakov from the crowd. We have a crowd of one. We have a crowd of one. He submits a question. Thank you. Um, he wants to know where are the best places to check your credit score. Okay. So I don't know the very best. I know that there are um, free online. Maybe there's free credit online because I hear that advertised. Okay. But when you do go for your pre-approval, they should be running your credit. Okay. So, and that's very common where I'll get a call. Somebody will say, hey, I'm not. Yes, I'm not ready to buy my house. I do want to know what I would qualify for when I am ready. I'm starting to think about it. So there's nothing wrong to reach out to somebody in the, in the in the industry and have an application taken, run your credit, and that should give you the information you need. When a bank lends a home buyer money, generally people go for the 30-year mortgage. What percentage of your customers, do we call them customers? Clients, customers, clients, clients, yeah. What percentage of your clients as a first-time home buyer take a 15-year mortgage versus a 30? So my customers, clients, yeah, I would say over 90% are going to take the 30-year fix. The reason is most of the products available now, you can prepay if you wanted to. You could make it a 15-year on your own. Define what that means by prepay. Sure. Okay, so a 30-year, if they'll take a $500,000 loan, I don't have my calculator in front of me, but using a rate of 3%, let's just say is, before tax and insurance, $2,200. If you take that same mortgage on a 15-year, can go all the way up to $3,100. So if you keep it at your 30-year payment, that loan will last for 30 years, and then it will... um, then it will be fully amortized. Right. If one decides to make that extra $800 payment or $900 payment, whatever the difference was, um, you will amortize that loan 15 years earlier, which is a significant amount of savings. Right. So because you do have the ability to do that on your own, I'll explain why it's not exactly the same, but because you do have the ability to do that on your own, on a first-time home buyer, I often actually recommend them to do a 30-year because their expenses are usually getting higher. And I'd rather them anticipate where things get, can, can be more difficult. And I don't want them to be in a bind later. Do you have people that have bought a 15-year and then it became too much and they had to switch out for a 30? Yes, I have. Yes, I have. People have taken the 15-year. The reason why people do take a 15-year, which is part of the last question, I didn't fully explain yeah. it. The 15-year does offer a lower rate. So a person would need to say, hey, if I'm really committed to making the 15-year payments, which are a lot higher, Mm -hmm. you will lock in a lower rate. Sometimes it's as much as over half a percent lower. So if a 30-year today is 3%, a 15-year may be 2.5%. That's really low. But it means you're locking yourself into that higher payment. 
And then after how many years do you generally see someone who's let, let's say they're not able to make it? Is it a year in, two years, or once? That, that's really that, that, there's no general question. There's no general answer to that. Okay. But I have seen where people regretted the fact that they took the 15 year. They didn't anticipate, you know, increased expenses, perhaps tuition got, you know, as kids are getting older, whatever it is that they didn't calculate properly. And generally speaking for first time home buyers, ex- uh, expenses do go up. Although your income should also go up, sometimes it's just not in line. So what's the downside there? Then they'll just switch out to a 30 year and they've saved based on the rate that was lower when they first started. Okay. Good question. Like usual. Yeah. Um, the downside is you would have to pay, go through the whole refinance process. Okay. But more than that is you're going to incur all the fees that, that a refinance entails. Depending on your county, um, Nassau County, your average closing cost is about twelve grand. Uh-huh. So yes, we'll roll it into the loan, but if you knew you were going to do that in a year, then it would definitely not be the wise decision. You're not saving twelve grand in one year if you knew you were going to refinance in a year. B, what happens if rates at, at rates when you want to do the refinance? Right. Maybe at that time, the 30-year is 4.5%. So when you initially could have locked in thirty, uh, the thirty year at three percent and be protected, now you're in a bind. You got to take the thirty year because you can't afford your fifteen year. Uh-huh. You're taking current market rates. We don't know where that will be. So even if someone thinks they can financially pay off a fifteen year for the first ten years, since they don't know where rates would be, it would probably be smarter to take the. If 30. somebody was guaranteed to be good to go for the first ten years, yeah. the balance will be pretty low with five years left. That's a different conversation. I'm usually getting the question of, can I do it? I think I can. And those people, I typically do not advise to do it. And I just say, make the extra payments if you're comfortable on a monthly basis without locking yourself in. And there's no penalty to prepay generally? Right. Generally speaking, there is no prepay. You would probably and hopefully be notified in very clear detail from the loan officer if there is a prepay. Certain products allow it. Most primary resident loans do not have a prepay. So there is a question somewhere on these papers. I'll try to word it in a way. Some say that when you prepay, you're using the money towards the house. That's all great. But had you taken that money and put it into some sort of other investment, you would have gotten more out of that. How do you weigh the two? So first response is they should speak to a financial advisor. Mm -hmm. However, I do break it down in a very, very simple calculation and that usually gets people started i ask them what they plan on doing with that money if they tell me they're keeping it in a cd earning 0.1 percent or whatever that's a waste of time Mm -hmm. so of course when you're doing that yeah there's more value to pay down your loan but with rates so low and the interest typically being tax deductible very often your net rate your net interest is in the twos I find it hard to believe that you can't find a place to earn more than that money. You know, maybe don't put everything into one bucket, but if you're allocated, you should be able to earn more than 3%. But again, that's really something that I would, that's how I would break it down to somebody. But ultimately, this becomes more of a financial advisor type of a question. Yakov, I feel like he's Siri for home buying. I'm waiting for like one question, but like, yeah, I don't have an answer to that. But so far, so good. Let's talk home inspections. Right, someone has uh, some sort of agreement in place, and they want to have someone come down, inspect the home. People do that for a living. A um, few questions here: A, what's a good way to ensure that your home inspector is reputable? That's one. Number two is: should the 
home buyer be on site during the inspection or you're just going to get in the way, let, let the fellow do what he needs to do? And what are red flags after someone gets an inspection report that should deter someone from buying the home? Okay. The last part of that question, it's really just a gut. So let me just answer the first two and hopefully that will explain okay. the third. Okay. It's always best when dealing with getting a recommendation to use someone that's unbiased. So if you have a friend that you know previously used a home inspector, that's your first choice. Often a real estate agent will give you three names. I've, when, In my personal experience, when I bought homes, I've used those. I've never had any problem with that. I believe that a reputable realtor will definitely give you someone that you can be comfortable with. You know, if you want to use someone unbiased, by all means. I do believe that the potential buyer should be at the inspection. You got to have conversations with the inspector. You're not going to be in the way. If Obviously, if you're nudging the guy, then that's not where you belong. But if you want to be there, watch what he sees. If you nudge him too much, he'll just push you off the roof. Yeah, you just, exactly, exactly. <laughs> right. But it also gives a potential buyer another opportunity to see the home. When you get an accepted offer, you really don't have the ability to see the home as many times as you'd like. Mm-hmm. Offer is accepted. There are people living in that house. Anytime you want to go there, you got to set up an appointment. So I find that it's an extra opportunity to actually see the house, go over the ideas that you may want to do. And regarding what you asked me about, what's a red flag? Whenever an inspector inspects a home, expect him to find problems with the home. That's his job. His job is to find the problems. Your job is to know, are these breakable, are these deal breakers? But every, there is no such thing as a perfect home. So the inspector will find problems. There may be many problems, but if it's a small fix, that's not a deal breaker. So really, you have to make sure that you understand every inspector is going to find a problem. That's his job. Mm-hmm. When we bought a home, I remember... There was some sort of issue. Maybe it was a dishwasher or, and we said, hey, we need this fixed before we buy the home. And, and they said, nope, we're selling the home as is. Is that generally the response from the seller side? In this market? Absolutely. Right. I don't know um, if anyone asked you because it may not be something that they're familiar with, but there's another big piece of every contract, which is called a mortgage contingency. I'll just be very brief on that. A mortgage contingency allows a potential home buyer to back out of a contract and receive his down payment money back if he cannot get approved for a mortgage. It's a protective clause for the buyer that obviously the seller would not prefer because he's now in limbo until that period gets passed. Usually you got like 45 days. I would say the average home today has two new clauses that were not as popular. The average contract states no mortgage contingency. So that means when you're signing that contract, that means you're in. Your down payment is now lost. If you cannot come through, you ain't getting that back. That's number one. Number two is they also add they're not requiring the appraisal to support the purchase price. And that's a new one. So these are things that um, are definitely new to this environment. And this environment, we're currently, for those listening in the year 2026, it's October 2021, somewhat post-COVID. 
supply is super limited and demand is very high. So let's say someone puts out an, an offer on a home. Sure. Can a prospective home buyer put a time limit on the offer to ensure that the seller isn't using that offer to try to get other offers, more money? What are the norms around that? Right. I don't know if I fully understand that question, but... Meaning, I put an offer down for 800000 Okay. Okay. Two weeks later, I'm asking, did they accept? Did they accept? They said, no, no, they need, they need some more time. And all the while, the seller is negotiating with other prospective buyers and trying to use my offer as bait or a way to increase someone who's at 790 and on the fence to go to 815. Can I tell the seller that, yeah, I'm willing to offer 800, but only over the next two weeks. I need to buy a home. I have other homes that I could. I really like this house. Sure. Don't drag me along for a month and then come back to me and say, no, thank you. Can I put some somewhat of a time limit on the offer I'm giving the seller? If I understand you correctly, you can do whatever you want. But if you really like this house, you're going to pursue this house. And the way how it works is nobody has anything until you have a signed contract. So you can give an offer. It's as good as nothing until you have that accepted offer and a signed contract. Unfortunately, you've had many scenarios where a guy gets an accepted offer, and then an hour later, he gets a call, someone came in higher. You have nothing until a signed contract. The fact that you gave a bid and you didn't hear anything for a week or two, Mm -hmm. really, you're not bound to anything. So if someone's giving some sort of offer and it's accepted, they should try to get something signed. You want as that right contract away. as soon as I, until there's a signed contract, you have nothing. And how long does it take to get a signed contract? Is so that a, it, a huge back and forth? You do need. Typically speaking, there's going to be both both parties will have an attorney. So you, once you're seriously active in in purchasing a home, you should already know who you're going to be using. I remember submitting some sort of like one paper form telling them what number I was willing. to. Yes. That is a proper bid that you're giving to the realtor. That still is not uh-huh. binding. Uh-huh. That is the next step when you're making a when, when you're probably going to be the best bidder. That's that, that step that they'll get you before they accept it because they want to just see the full bid. You still have nothing uh-huh. until a contract is signed. Let's talk tax abatements. When people, I remember when I moved in, I live in North Woodmere. Someone was telling me about star tax relief or. If you're an EMT for five years, there's some sort of... Cra- I, I learned as I was yeah. going, and I felt like, is, shouldn't there be a pamphlet for my area to let me know what sort of tax abatements and um, lowerings of taxes I can get as a result of X, Y, and Z? Is there a website you recommend? How do people know what they should be taking advantage of and, and don't have to learn about it after the fact? Right. So it's really beyond the mortgage industry, but I feel that a real estate agent that's an expert in a specific county or a, specific, or a certain town, they should know those details. And being that you're bringing it up, it doesn't hurt as a potential home buyer to actually ask the realtor. If, if a buyer thinks that it may be relevant to them, can't hurt to ask. Um, I am more experienced with clergy discounts because I've done many loans for Rabbanim or people that receive parsonage. How do I become a clergy? Yeah, I know. There's right. a lot of savings to that. Right. But 
that I can just tell you that you do not have access to that until you're already on title of the home. So it wouldn't be something to do prior to purchasing anyways. You must be on title, apply for it, whatever the process is. And then anyways, I think the following year after you get approved, it will go into effect. So you could do that after you move in. But these questions are very, very good to ask the realtor that knows that, you know, th- those areas. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, when I bought my first house, I remember getting a rate from my mortgage broker. And then someone says, why don't you call the bank directly? Maybe you can get a better rate. And I know the the, the answer might be here. Well, it depends. You should do your homework. Is that the right answer? Is there a way... It, you know, there's this mentality of people who try cutting out the, the middleman here. What are the advantages of, uh, what are the advantages of going through a mortgage broker versus dealing with the banks directly? And what are the disadvantages sure. of sure. that? Essentially, a person should call 20 banks and find out what each one is offering. But of course, that's ridiculous and nobody has the time for that. So the advantage of a mortgage banker and hopefully you're getting you're dealing with an honest one. He does that for you at his one shop. By you calling him, he's already searching all these places. Um, typically speaking, their rates will be the same, sometimes even better. And he's doing all all of that vetting out for you. Sometimes lower. Sometimes it will be lower. Okay. Now there are times where specific banks may be targeting certain type of deals, but if you're dealing with an honest loan officer. I believe he should direct you based on your specific file. He should be able to tell you, hey, this is actually the right place for you to go to. But typically speaking, this loan officer, if he's working at a company that deals with money outlets, he's doing that research for you. And speaking to multiple mortgage brokers at the same time, is that a big no-no? I know it's a biased question. Yeah, Um you're probably not going to get a hundred percent commitment from any one of those loan officers if they know that you're not all in with that person. So that's really the potential downside. Gotcha. And what type of, when someone's shopping around for a broker, they've never done this before. What are red flags when it comes to a broker? I would say, and please name names. No, yeah, exactly. No, but what, what, you know, let's say someone's living in, um, Denver, Colorado, and they need someone specific to that market, and they don't know, and they've heard about some person, they don't have information, and they call them up, and something's off. What what are things they should be looking out for? So, I don't have the exact answer, but I like when people give me direct answers. You want to ask them a question, what's the rate, and they answer you. Depending on how they answer you, you can tell if this is a bait and switch type of a person. A person should not be quoting a rate without knowing your specific file. I just use that as an example of a question, but I don't like roundabout answers. When people answer direct, it's usually a sign that this guy knows what he's doing. You have to just feel him out. There's, it's very hard for me to know specifically because I'm sure there's different people how you know they conduct their business that you wouldn't want to use, and each one has their own way of doing it. It's it's a it's a feel you got you got to feel it out. When I was buying a home, I found, and you mentioned this before, speaking to other people who went through their process, especially when it came to home inspection mortgage broker, if I found that there was a common theme between the answers of five friends who went through the process before, I felt a whole lot more comfortable knowing yeah. that they you know, had the backing of my friends. Um, so there is what there. Um, do you see, first of all, people buying homes outside of their means? I know we spoke a little bit when it came to um, the mortgages, yeah. but 
um, people buying homes where they have to rely more so on their parents or outside, you know, taking out a, another loan to try to get the liquidity to put a down payment on. Do you see a lot of people or some people living outside their means and you say, hey, I really don't think you can afford this? Right. So typically speaking, people are not buying out of, you know, above their means, even though many people think that is going on. But I don't always see what their means are. This is what I, you know, what right, I alluded right. to earlier. A lot of times I look at a borrower's income, they're making this and this amount, and I'm thinking to myself, how are they going to do it? And their yam and are covered by a family member. Mm. Those are things that I can't calculate. Right, right. So it's very hard for me to know what everybody's means are. There are people that are definitely buying above their means, but for the most part, people are... Um, studious over here, they do know what they are able to afford. And the actual underwriting process really only allows you to qualify based on your income supporting this number. Now, if a family, if there's a family that has m- multiple children in a Jewish school, the underwriter cannot calculate that. So that's that does fall back on the homeowner knowing what he could afford. But for the most part, the guidelines are built in to cover that people are able to afford their monthly payment. A lot of people nowadays are moving out of town a lot more so than our parents' um, generation. Do you think people are moving out of the tri-state area because the price of a home is a lot more affordable out of town? I know there's a little bit different than probably what you're dealing with, Um, but home buying is expensive. I mean, you look at either tuition or home buying. It's one or the other in terms of what's people's, what are people's biggest expense. And homes are very affordable out of the tri-state area. Do you think that's a catalyst as to why people are moving out to Florida, Ohio, wherever it is outside yeah, the tri-state? I would say the number one catalyst and determining factor where a first-time home buyer is going to be buying his home is home affordability. So absolutely. I very often get calls from people that are looking for a certain area a few months later, they give me a, they ask me for a pre-approval on a house in a completely different area. I'm oh. like, what happened? Uh-huh. Can't af- I can't find a house in the in the range that I was looking. Absolutely. Do you supply mortgages to people outside of New York? I personally do. You do. Okay. Yeah. So does that mean you have to learn that specific market? You have to speak to banks in that area, or geography is not relevant to a mortgage broker for the most part geography is not relevant there are certain first-time homebuyer programs that may be relevant to certain states but you know pretty much if if somebody is lending in that state they have the the tools to know how to you know plug it in and you know it would show up if a certain product allows a down payment assistance some products do get offer some of that but um for the most part if you're approved if you're licensed in that state totally reliable when someone calls you up and says, hey, rates are super low. I bought my home five years ago. Should I refinance? What's going through your head? What are the questions sure. you ask back at them? And when's it a good time to yeah, refinance? Sure. And if you can just explain to everyone what refinancing is briefly. Sure. A refinance, there's pretty much two types of refinances. One would be simply to lower your rate, which will in essence lower your monthly payment. If you kept the same term, so you were originally in a 30-year Rates are lower. You're staying in that 30 year to take advantage of the lower rate. Your monthly payment will go down. Some people will also lower your term because now the 15 year is so low, 
it's actually similar to their current payment. So, for example, if somebody took out a uh, 30-year mortgage five years ago, now they have 25 years left, and they see the 15-year is low, but now I could afford the 15-year because my balance is a little bit lower, my income is a little bit higher, so often people will refinance into a 15-year. So their payment may go up or be similar, but that's worth it for them because now they're knocking off 10 years. Those are your two rate and term refinances. Now, as far as one, I would recommend that type of rate uh, uh, refinance. So if you're sticking with the 30 and going back into the 30 and your monthly payment is going to be dropping by $500, let's say, we calculate the closing costs. So if it's $12,000, your break even in that scenario will be two years and change. I'll ask the borrower, how long do you plan on staying in the home? If it's more than that time frame, typically speaking, that will make sense for them to refinance because they'll recoup the closing costs. And plus, all additional time that they're at the home, they're going to save that $500 a month. As far as the 30 to 15, usually that's not a monthly saving, so it's not really a break-even question. It's more of if the person could afford it, he's going to save the 10 years of the interest. Mm-hmm. That takes care of the rate and term refinance. As far as a cash-out refinance, those are typically not rate-related because that's usually a borrower wants to take advantage of equity that he has in his home. It does play a role, the rate, because if he's obviously at a super low rate, he may not consider taking out money if the rate's going to be significantly higher. But typically speaking, when someone wants the money, they're not as rate sensitive. They want to either pay down credit card. They want to make a simcha. They want to invest. Whatever it may be, they tap into the equity of the home. The equity that's allowed on a cash out refinance is a little bit tighter than on a purchase. So like we said before, a purchase would allow 97%. On a cash out, you'll probably have to think about something like 80%. But by us, but what will happen is you're going to pull the money out, go straight to you. You don't pay taxes on that because that's borrowed money. And depending on how much you take out will determine your monthly payment. But now you have access to all the cash and using your um, the equity in your home. So I initially, when I bought my home in 2016, I think my rate was a little over 3%. I forget exa- the exact number, maybe 32 And then during COVID, it dropped, I refinanced and I got 2.875%. At what point should I consider refinancing again, if at all? Sure. So again, I would analyze the numbers, how much you'd be saving based on the current market rates. So if the savings would be $50 a month and it costs $12,000 to do, Mm -hmm. I would have to figure out how many months that is. And I, I don't recommend refinancing if it's more than five years, less than three years. Yes, the break even is what I'm talking about. If it's going to take you more than three years, up to five, I usually just explain that at length with the borrower to explain that it's really not a home run to do. But, you know, you got to really know if the borrower is going to be moving in a few years, usually that takes away the reason to refinance. So, and it also depends on the loan amount. So, you just mentioned your rate. If you have a $50,000 loan mm-hmm. to go down to 1%, that's probably not going to be worth it. Right. Because how much are you saving? Right. But on a million dollar loan, even to save a quarter percent may be worth it. So all of those things go into play. If someone's going through a tough time with Parnassa, what type of vehicles in the forms of forbearance or other options available to someone to help them deal with a monthly mortgage payment? No one wants to go to sleep thinking, sure. hey, 
I'm not going to be able to make my monthly mortgage. What can they do to sleep better at night, but know that when disaster strikes, the bank's going to be happy and I'm, I'm still able to put food on the table. Right. My suggestion is first and foremost, before you actually miss a payment is to call the servicer. It's the number listed on the mortgage statement. And besides all the COVID-19 foreclosure, um, all the um, the forbearance that they've put out for specific for COVID-19, all these banks, they do have these loss mitigation departments. They do have a department that's ready to handle this. So before you miss a payment, definitely call them. There may be some sort of reduced payment for a short period of time. Unfortunately, often some of these companies only listen to you after you miss payments, but definitely have the conversation first because you may be surprised. Your servicer may have something where they could postpone payments for a few months, they could lower it for a few months. So don't miss a payment before speaking to them. When I first got my mortgage, I think it was through Santander Bank, and then I turned around three months later and it was some other bank. And then sure. six months later, what's going on there? Why is that happening? Yeah, so that's secondary market. They're just moving your exact loan that you've already taken out. All it is, it's a different servicer that's handling it. It's it's really how the, the servicer wants to handle that loan. Sometimes they sell it off. But more than that, it's really what the secondary market is dealing with. When I first bought the house, I noticed that my bill or the statement was due or the money was coming out on, let's say, the third of the month. And then I called them and I said, hey, when is it actually due? They're like, oh, you have to the 15th. I said, okay, so then just change the the due date on that. Um, so I find that that's a, another thing that, hey, I didn't know until I actually went through the process. I get paper billing. I don't like the email because I like getting it in my hand physically. Um, let's go through some tips so if someone is selling a home, mm-hmm. they call you up, um, what do you tell them to keep in mind when they're selling a home? It could okay. even just be one solid yep. tip. You want that buyer to be pre-approved, like we spoke about. Pre-approved. What about for the buyer? What is something that is a no-brainer that they have to keep in mind? Okay. I, we, I think we mentioned that it also, that especially in today's um, market, expect to pay above asking price. And be prepared for the appraisal to come in below the purchase price, and you may have to bring more money than the actual down payment of the purchase price. Have you seen people buying a second home for tax benefits or to rent out? Is that something that someone with extra liquidity should even consider? Is it financially wise to buy right. a bungalow? Yeah, I mean, that, that again, that, that's a specific question. Probably one should go over with a CPA. But all the time, people are buying second homes. It's very common. Most of the people that own these bungalows, it's their second home. And um, as long as they are winterized, you can get a mortgage on those. So it's very common, second homes, invest in properties. I'm finding now more and more people are buying single-family investment properties that they're airbnb That's a huge mm. market right now that people are doing. So Buying homes? They're buying homes. One-family homes. One-family homes. And they're just putting it on the Airbnb market, and they're making significantly more than the actual market rent on a monthly basis. Wow. I've seen a lot of that now. Get a lot of calls about that. What areas are they All buying over. the Florida homes? Florida is, the, I would say, the busiest area that I'm seeing that in. Uh-huh. Wow. Um, home prices are just going higher and higher and higher. I mean, I don't think it's specific to one neighborhood. 
do you see it cooling down at all here in October 2021? Is it just yeah. continuing to climb? Question what? I can't answer, but I do think that interest rates do play a role. And if interest rates do increase, which they've been saying that it will do that, uh, it will likely bring, it will stabilize the market, maybe even start bringing some things down as interest rates climb. But again, this is area, each area is very, very unique. Is it growing, you think, more quickly home prices in the Orthodox Jewish community versus elsewhere, or is it the same across neighborhoods? Across the the board, there is a real estate crisis. There's not enough homes. This is unrelated to Orthodox community. But specific in the Orthodox community, we always have been dealing with this. There's just a shortage of homes and the blocks that you want next to this shul. So it's definitely exacerbated in the Orthodox community. But this really is industry across the board. My brother was looking at East Rockaway. We spoke about this in another um, episode. But he finds that the homes are just not affordable in the five towns areas. And he's looking for a place where home prices are cheaper, but the taxes aren't crazy through the roof. And he hasn't really been able to find that um, spot. Are you seeing any because of the lack of supply in the homegrown areas, are you seeing any cities, whether in New York or out of New York, that people should possibly consider where there are some savings there? Yeah, so I don't have that that city. That I don't have that hidden city right now. Definitely people are moving. You know, we've mentioned in, in, in other um, podcasts, the Tom's River, people are definitely moving right. there. People are moving in areas in Muncie. They're just, you know, spreading further. Pomona and some other areas I've been getting a lot of calls in. Uh Um, The five towns is very, very difficult. Um, The lower the house, the the cheaper the house, usually the taxes are are skyrocket. And that goes hand in hand because anyone that's buying a house with $20,000 of taxes can't afford a house that's 800,000 in those areas. Right. So the 20 in Woodmere the 20,000 taxes will probably be 500. The 10,000 are going to be 800. Mm-hmm. So that's why it happens cuz that's what the buyer can afford. But the one area I don't have the one area, but um people are definitely moving out of the five towns. Florida has grown as well, right? Hollywood, Boca, you see Tampa, I have a friend who moved down to Tampa. Boca and, and Hollywood, the price is already extremely high. Tampa is Too probably high. low, but that, low. that's really, you have to be willing. Right. You, you know? Have to, it's, it's, uh, there's a trade-off there. There definitely is a trade-off. Right. Well, this has been super insightful. Um, Evan Templeman, Cross Country Mortgage. Um, I'm sure people might have additional questions. They can reach out to you. Absolutely. What's the best way? Is there a LinkedIn, a website? Um, what would you... Uh, E-V-A-N-T at myccmortgage.com. Okay, so that's Evan T at myccmortgage.com. That's the best way to get in touch with Evan. Um, maybe once the market switches up and home buying becomes super affordable, we'll bring you back to discuss that climate. But this has been great. Thank you so much for coming down. My pleasure. Take care. This podcast has been hosted by my brother, Ellie Langer, produced by me, Yaakov Langer, and brought to you by Living L'Chaim. To check out other podcasts from Living L'Chaim, go to livinglechaim.com. Check out our YouTube channel. Check up Living L'Chaim on podcasts and do your thing. Until next time. Enjoy life. Living L'Chaim.